How many people here can remember the first time that you thought you were in love? Hopefully there's some people who say, I'm in love right now. But uh, the first time you were in love, has, does your opinion of love change from way back then up until this present point for what you thought was love? Imagine the six-year-old kid who thinks love is getting a Valentine's card with a sucker in the shape of a heart from a cute boy. Ah, oh, I got love right here in the sucker. Or the 12-year-old who gets up the nerve to ask some cute girl to the dance, and as they're driving to the dance, because she said, yes, they're getting chaperoned in the car, and their hands touch accidentally, and they get all these goosebumps and all these excited feelings because that's love. Or think about the 16-year-old who gets her first kiss on her first date, and she thinks she's died and went to heaven. Life does not get any better than this. But there's more love, love changes there, too, when you're 22, when you, you finally say, I do. And you, you think you, you're going to be happy the rest of your life and you have no idea what you're getting yourself into, but you're in love, right? That's what true love is. Or the parent who comes home with that cute little bundle of joy, and I'm so proud of this and you better not say anything bad about my baby. The ham hocks that they got, you better keep that opinion to yourself. That's love. Or you get that the greatest expression of love that I can think of is the person who's willing to put their life and sacrifice it for somebody else, because the person who dies for somebody else, what do they get in return for that? They don't get anything. All they get is the fact that they know that hopefully the person they protected is going to live. Each stage of life, you get a, a view of what love is, and as you grow and as you get bigger, you get a bigger idea or bigger picture of what love is. And really, we're not even going to be talking about love today, not about how great it is or what stage of life is the greatest love. But it's a picture of thinking that you understand something, and as you get older and you face different situations in life, you start to get a bigger picture. And that's what happens with the disciples, because Jesus has had the disciples, and they start out with a picture of Jesus that's about this big. He says, hey, I want you to be my disciple, which is a very big step. They have a little bit of information, and they say, okay, I'm going to follow you because you asked me to follow you. And as they start walking with Jesus, their view gets a little bit bigger. Because Jesus is teaching people, and they say, oh, okay, now I know who Jesus is. And it gets bigger when Jesus starts doing miracles. Last week, do you remember, the disciples finally said, Jesus asked them, who do you people say that I am? And they said, you are Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And they probably think they got the biggest, they finally understand who Jesus is. But today, that view gets bigger, because Jesus is going to reveal to three of his disciples what his heavenly glory looks like, while he's on earth. But even that's not the end of how, how much they can learn about Jesus. Because when Jesus is, dies on a cross and he raises again, they probably think, I get it now. I know Jesus. I understand who Jesus is and why he came. But guess what? Even at that point, they have not yet arrived because when you get to heaven, that's when you finally understand. You finally get the biggest picture of, oh, that's who Jesus is. That's what Jesus did for me. That's how much Jesus loves me. You start out with a view this big, and over time, hopefully your view of Jesus gets bigger and bigger until finally you get to heaven, and you have the perfect view of who Jesus is, because the goal is to be learning more and more about Jesus. If you want to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter, 29, or chapter 9, verses 28 to 36, we're going to see one of the stages, about halfway point of, of Jesus, or of, of the disciples, understanding who Jesus is, when they see part of his heavenly glory. So Luke chapter 9, verses 27 to 36. 
And the first thing we see is that Jesus reveals himself to his disciples in a very special way that only three people, as far as we know, have got to experience up until that point. So Luke chapter 9, verses 28 to 32. It says, About eight days after this, Jesus took Peter, John, and James with him and went up on a mountainside to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. So the first thing you see is that as Jesus is praying, starting, something is starting to happen. He's starting to change. He's starting to get very bright. <clears throat> Which, if, you, if you're familiar with the other prayers that Jesus has prayed, when he prayed with the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, you don't hear this recorded. You don't hear that Jesus is changing his appearance. When Jesus was praying with the disciples at multiple times up until this point, Jesus does not change. He stays exactly the way the disciples know him, which means this is a very special thing that these three disciples get to experience, that not anybody else in the whole history of the world, I don't think, has experienced, because even when Jesus rose from the dead, guess what? He looked like Jesus. Everybody could recognize him. He wasn't bright and shining. He looked exactly the way that they had seen him, except for that he wasn't beat to a pulp. He was completely healthy, and he was fine. So he didn't even do it at that point. He said, now is the time I want to reveal to my disciples, this is what I really look like. And it says, the appearance of his face changed. Now, I don't think that changed the structure of his face like some radical transformation. And I think that for a couple reasons, because in Matthew it says, his face shone like the sun. He, Jesus is, is a very bright God. And when he was down here on earth, he veiled that. He, he kept that to himself. He, he, uh, he refrained from using certain godly qualities or attributes. And one of those things that he did was he veiled himself to be just like us. So I don't think his face immediately it was this huge structural change because the disciples could also recognize him. The disciples were sleeping, right? And they're, they're, they're kind of out of it. I don't know if it was because of this great big hike up the mountain, but they're not really paying attention while Jesus is praying. And at the point where they, re- they open their eyes and they say, this is Jesus, I'm sure they're taken back because it's a very bright light. Jesus didn't ever look like that before, but Jesus looked like himself, and so they think, this is still Jesus. So I don't know what he's doing, but I think it's safe to go and talk to Jesus. I think he looked like himself, which, side note, when we die and we get to heaven, I think we're going to look like us. I think I'm going to look like me. Now, I'm hoping that I get the best version of myself. You know, I'm hoping to be about 20 years old. I got a goatee. I got enough hair in my head that I can comb. You know, my, my physique was just a tad bit bigger. It's never been that great, but it, I'm hoping for the best version of myself. And I imagine, I mean, all the flaws that we have, like I've, sti- I've sti- had stitches in my chin. I think the scar is going to be gone. And stitches by here. People who had their face deformed by a fire who were born that way, I think are going to look like God intended them to look. Because there's people who never made it out of the womb and actually grew up to be anything. The babies who were aborted, they're going to become something besides just what they were, but I think we're going to be us, and hopefully it's the best version of ourselves. So hopefully you can look in the mirror when you get home and say, thank you, God, for making me look like this. And, and hopefully God will give you the best version of yourself. 
But really, that is just a side note. When Jesus became a man, he veiled himself. He, he hid certain qualities of, of, his, of his godhood. In Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8, we find this. It says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. And being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. One of those things that Jesus veiled was his, was his, his glory, and was his bright and shiny appearance. Because, guess what? The best that we can do, even like this bald spot on my head that shines when the light hits it just right, it's not glowing. When the lights are out, I can't see you because it's dark. And you guys cannot see me because it's dark. And so God, so Jesus, when he became a man, he said, I'm going to be just like the humans are. I'm going to take the physical form. I'm going to experience temptation and happiness and sadness and the good times and the bad times because I want to be just like them so that they can trust me so when I get to heaven, I can help them through all those difficult times. And when he revealed himself to his disciples, he gave them a better understanding of who he really is. He says, this is just me on an everyday basis, but when I get to heaven, this is what I really look like. And his, it says his clothes were even shining bright as lightning because the, the light from his body was pushing, was blink, beaming through his clothes. And so even they were this bright light that was shining everywhere that the disciples could be or that they could see. And you find out that there's two people who appear with Jesus, one by the name of Moses and one by the name of Elijah. Now, does any, anybody have any idea why God picked Moses and Elijah? I mean, maybe they were just the two closest guys up in heaven, right? Said, hey, Moses and Elijah, I need you to give a message to Jesus, so why don't you guys go and give that message to Jesus? I don't really think that's really logical. Uh, there's, there's a couple reasons or a couple options we have as for why God specifically picked Moses and Elijah to go and talk to Jesus. The one is that the law and the prophets were coming to an end. Moses represented the law. He brought the law to the people of Israel. Elijah was representing the prophets. Now, when Jesus came, he fulfilled the, the righteous requirements of the law so that when he died and he rose again, the law was no longer needed. It was no longer needed. They did not have to follow all the ceremonial laws that they had had to up until that point. And in the book of Acts, you find people are struggling with this idea, especially a man by the name of Peter, when God let down the sheep from heaven with all sorts of four-footed animals. He says, here, take and eat. And Peter says, nothing unclean has ever entered my mouth. And through that, Peter starts to recognize that those animals are now clean. And it wasn't okay for the Jews to associate with the Gentiles. And now God's telling uh, Peter, it is okay for the Jews and the Gentiles to associate. The law is no longer binding anymore. Elijah represented the prophets. All the prophecies, all the things predicted in the Old Testament that they said Jesus was going to fulfill, guess what? When Jesus died on that cross and he rose again, all those Old Testament prophecies about Jesus coming were going to be fulfilled. So the Old Testament law and the prophets were no longer needed anymore. And so if you have representative of Moses and Elijah talking to Jesus, it could almost be like we're passing the baton off to Jesus saying, okay, we recognize that what you have to give to these people is better than what we did. We, we did our part. It's now time for you to do your part. And the Jewish people could look at that 
who read that could see they're going to be learning that the, the law is no longer valid, that they don't need to follow it anymore. But it just proves kind of at what point did that end when Jesus was taking over to, to be the, the guide to which they were supposed to follow. The second reason why it could be Moses and Elijah that were picked is both of these people had very unique endings on this earth. Moses, he died on a mountain called Mount Pisgah, and he uh, was buried by God himself. And that's all you get about his, the ending of his life. You don't have the Israelites up there with him. You just have God bearing Moses. And so, but he died. Moses physically died. He was put into the ground. Elijah, last week we saw that Elijah didn't die. He was taken up in a whirlwind in a chariot of fire. So he never died. And so for the sake of eternity, you have the disciples seeing these two different people who look almost exactly the same. They, they are in a new heavenly body. They're in and glory, which kind of, maybe for us, it really doesn't seem like it's that big a deal, but for the people there, they, I think they wondered about what happens to the people who die versus the people who go up in the rapture. Because people who die, when you have your own personal appointment with death, you get a new heavenly body. The people who never die because you get raptured, you get a new heavenly body. And it's showing the people you get the same thing. There's nothing weird or different about them. Everybody who has put their faith in Jesus, who meets God, gets a new heavenly body. So that's just two possible reasons why Moses and Elijah appeared. A lot of speculation. There's actually a lot of wondering and speculation in this message about what, why things specifically happen. But that's two of them. And when Elijah and Moses were talking to Jesus, they were talking about his departure. Because Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And guess what he's going there to do? Jesus is going there to die. And Moses and Elijah are talking with Jesus about that event, about the exodus, about his time when he's going to leave the earth. Now, I have no idea really what Moses and Elijah are saying. That's a conversation I think would be fun to be a part of to know. What did they say? Did they say, hey, Jesus, we did our part. Now it's time for you to do yours. Did they say, hey, Jesus, you know what? We, we've heard it's going to be really rough for you. Because you know that when Jesus was in the garden, he was in agony, right? It was not something he looked forward to do going to the cross. And maybe they're trying to encourage him, saying, Hey, Jesus, I know it's going to be tough. It's a tough world that you lived in, and you're going to do something very difficult, but God is going to help you through that. Maybe they were encouraging him. And maybe they're saying, Now is the time. Because uh, maybe saying that God has, has told Moses and Elijah to tell Jesus, Now is the time to go. It is the correct timing for Jesus for you to head to Jerusalem. You're going to take this trip. You're going to fulfill all these prophecies, but now is the time to go. Once again, why, what were they saying? We have no idea, but we know that Jesus prayed. And we know that the, the, uh, Moses and Elijah showed up, and they talked about the point where Jesus was going to exit this earth because he came and fulfilled what he came to fulfill and go back up to heaven. So you have Jesus showing the disciples this is what I truly am like. Bright shining. Uh, this is my, my parents may have changed a little bit. This is who I really am. You guys didn't understand this because all you've seen of me is exactly what you see in yourself, just a physical person. But this is not all there is. Their view of Jesus is just slowly getting bigger and bigger. And it, He could have said, this is not all there is, but he didn't. He just says, for now, this is what you can handle about who I am. In a minute... God's going to verify or he's going to stand up for Jesus and tell the, these three disciples, 
reconfirm that listen to my son because this, this is the one I've chosen and be quiet and to listen to him. But in, in between these two, you have Peter, the disciple who's one more known for sticking his foot in his mouth and, and feeling like he's got to say something, so he does. Once again, he does that. Verses 32 and 33. It says, Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving, Jesus, Peter, as, I'm sorry, as the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But he did not know what he was saying. Peter is, he, he gets, they wake up, they go to Jesus, and I imagine they get the short little introduction Hey, Moses and Elijah, these are my three top disciples, Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John, this is Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah said, hey, great, Jesus, it was nice talking to you. It's time for us to go. Peter says, wait a second, I just got here. Uh, uh, what, do you, what do you say to Jesus and Moses and Elijah? I, I, I'm not ready for you to go. He says, why don't I build three tabernacles for you guys, as the Old Testament puts it, or three shelters, three tents. And, and that would be, uh, you, you could use tree branches, and you could use, or you could use sticks, and you could use fabric, anything you want, but it was a temporary structure, but it did show some sign of permanency that Peter was saying, hey guys, I'm not ready for you to leave yet. I just got here. The party just started. Let me in on the conversation. I want to hear what's going on with you guys, and I want to hear what's going on with Jesus. And that, that's one possible option. Possibly he was thinking, um, that I don't, want, I don't want this to end. But by putting up three structures, even though they're temporary, they're trying to, he's trying to keep Jesus to stay there. I mean, and Jesus is on a mission. He says, I'm going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to die. But if he stays there, he's not leaving, is he? I don't know how long those tents lasted, if it was a week or if it was two weeks, but it's something where Peter just doesn't know what he's saying. The, other, the, the Bible says he didn't know what he's saying, uh, he didn't know what to say. He's overwhelmed with fear because of what's going on. He just knows he doesn't want this to stop yet. But when he's offering three different tabernacles or three different tents for Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, in the Jewish custom, that's saying, I'm get, kind of giving equality with you guys. Yeah, Peter, or I'm sorry, yeah, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. Even if you stick Jesus in the middle, giving them three exactly the same thing is kind of giving them equality, saying, Hey, you guys are kind of all the same, which is a big no-no, because Jesus is clearly someone bigger and better than any man who's ever lived on this earth, even Moses and Elijah, who in the Old Testament times were people that everybody looked to, and they, they followed and they listened to everything that they said, because in man's eyes, they were something special. But God's saying, or I mean, but according to this, that's not okay. You don't give equality with Jesus with any man on earth. And Jesus, when he's, when it, in uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 58, Jesus is going to tell his disciples, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Because Jesus didn't come about this earth. He came to this earth, but he's on a mission. He didn't come to stay, stay here or set up an earthly kingdom and have uh, servants and have people worship him here on earth. He came because he's going to die on a cross so he could give us eternal life. If he stays here, He's not going to fulfill that as he's supposed to do. And Peter doesn't know what he's saying. He just thinks, I've got to say something in order, because this is Jesus and these are two famous people. Just starts blurting out the first thing that comes into his mind. 
Let me be hospitable. Let me keep you guys here. Let me help you to stay. And God seems to have almost had enough of Peter by what he says next, that it really, Peter, it's time for you to just sit down and to listen because there's more going on here than you really understand. Verse 34 says, While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found what Jesus, that Jesus was alone, and the disciples kept this to themselves and told no one until the time, at that time what they had seen. And so I picture the, the cloud starts coming down because the disciples are, getting, are becoming alarmed, they're becoming afraid, and it comes down and it, 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 it surrounds them, it encompasses them. And the, and the disciples are wondering what is going on. Moses and Elijah say, it's time for me to leave, and God comes into the picture and he starts speaking to the people, or to these three men. And he says, and I imagine him saying this in like a, a father tone. I don't think he's just saying, this is my son, listen to him. I think he's saying, look guys, this is my son whom I have chosen, listen to him. Moses and Elijah did their part. Peter, you're sticking your foot in your mouth. You're trying to speak when you should be listening. Be quiet and listen to my son. This is the one I have chosen. What he's saying, again, is that it's important that we don't give equality with God with other people. Now, it's easy for us to do that because we have, we have man-made intelligence, right? We have doctors. We have Christian psychologists or secular psychologists, people who have written books, and they've written uh, all sorts of inspirational kinds of things, and people say, they kind of equate that with God. You know, instead of going to God's Word to see what he says about a topic, they say, what does James Dobson say about this? Even though he's a great guy, I mean, I highly respect him. He takes a lot from what he says from God's Word, but people, they give equality with God with Dr. So-and-so on TV. Even a, uh, uh, Dr. David Jeremiah, and it's like, that's great. You've got to listen to what he's saying. But you've got to go to God's words. You don't just believe things because people say them. And then when you have the choice, you've got to go with God. And I know the, the more the world gets on, there's more uh, biblical scholars and more people who write inspirational, encouraging books. And it's real easy to say, well, what did you read today? Well, I read my inspirational devotional book, which is fine. They put a little verse in there, but you have somebody else's thoughts. We can't equate that and say that's the same thing as reading and spending time with God and his word because these are God's words specifically to us, and he can speak to us in a different way than in somebody else's inspirational thoughts. And the second thing is, he's saying is, we've got to take God's word seriously. Jesus, God's telling the disciples, this is my son. These are his words. Listen to what he is telling you. All the things that he's told you in the past, all the things he's going to tell you now, listen to him, because he is my son, and we have to follow in the... Listen with immediate obedience. Don't put anything equal to God. Uh, listen to him, even if you don't like what it says. Like it, love it, or hate it. God's word is God's word to us. It's not an option where you just decide, I'm going to do this today or I'm not going to do this. We have to do this every day and listen to it as if it was actually God's word being spoken to us. Now I want to go over something, just for a tad bit here for just a second, about Jesus being God's son. Because he says, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. There's lots of different views about what does that mean that Jesus is God's son. There's religions out there 
like the JWs, to teach that Jesus was created. And so, and that, and according to them, that lines up because then Jesus could still create the world. Jesus was just created before the creation came. There's other ones that say that Jesus was born. God and a mother God got together and they had a son. Leslie and I got together and had Noah and Caleb. They were a generational thing and people say God and Mary got together and had a son. But that doesn't, that's not what it means when it says Jesus is God's son. When Jesus is God's son, Jesus was God's likeness on earth. Jesus was literally God in the flesh down here on earth. Emmanuel, God with us. And so when he's saying, this is my son, he's not just saying, this is my offspring. He's saying, pretty much this is me. Listen to the words that I am telling you because this is Jesus, is God in the flesh, and he's come to give you this message. Now, there's, there's lots of things you can learn from this, this sermon. I know I, I feel like I spoke that really fast. I don't know if it was <laughs> hard to, to pick it up or not. But I want to I stop and say, or come back to this idea that when you were six years old and you got a, a, a sucker and you thought you were in love, you had a view this big of what love is. When you got saved, you, when someone said, hey, you're a sinner, you need a savior, you had a view this big of who God was and of what God meant to you. And I want to encourage you or, or ask you the question to ask yourself, what, what level am I at with God? Am I, is my knowledge of God this big, like when I was six years old or when I first got saved? Or has it grown? Has it expanded? Have I spent time reading God's word and understanding him? Because the more you read and the more you, you spend time with God's word, your view or your, uh, your understanding of God is going to increase. And I've learned that for myself. I've been just trying to just tear through the Old Testament. And as I do, I get a better picture of what the Old Testament is as a whole flow. But if, you just, just, if I stop with just what I've been taught, that's not much. And if I stop with just a little section of Scripture and say, well, that's nothing, I really don't know. But the more you spend time with God, your, your view of God is going to get better, bigger. Your, your understanding of who God is is going to get better. Ultimately, down here on earth, you're not going to understand everything about God. You're not going to understand how, how much Jesus loves you and how, the depth that he went to. We found out today that he revealed himself to his disciples, meaning he, he loved us so much that he veiled himself to become just like us. Because he could have been just like us and gone through everything, but looked completely different, like this bright and shining light. But he says, I want to know exactly what it's like to be just like you. From birth until death, everything that you experience, temptation, good, bad, or ugly, I'm going to go through that. Today we see that he, he showed himself to his disciples. This is what I'm going to look like. And the same thing is going to happen when you spend time in God's word. I guarantee you, you're going to get a better picture and a better understanding of who Jesus is. Until ultimately, when you get to heaven, you have the fullest understanding of who Jesus is, how much he loves you, and, and what he ultimately did for you. But where are you right now, and how, far, how hard are you willing to work? How far are you willing to go to increase your knowledge of Jesus before you get to heaven? I, I encourage you, whatever stage you're at, don't stay there. Make it bigger today. Make it bigger the next day, until finally, ultimately, you know everything there is about God and about the love of Jesus before you get to heaven. Don't, don't be content with a six-year-old sucker. Get to the point where you understand the, the life-giving, uh, the life-saving love that someone has for somebody else. Go to the full extent so you know everything that there is about the love of Jesus. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you that you love me so much that you, you came to this earth to experience what it was like to know to be a human, and that, so that you could go up to heaven and you could relate to us and you could understand us and 
Help us through those hard times and through those temptations that we face. God, I know that each of us could do a better job on our understanding of your love and of your salvation, of, of what your word teaches us. And I pray that you would encourage us each day as we read your word to understand and to learn more about who you are. And we would remember that and we would get excited about that and be encouraged just to learn more and more about you and live out your word in our life. I just pray for anybody here who really wants to try that, that you would give them that extra gumption and the gusto to do that. And I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.